morning, church. Welcome to worship this morning with SCBZ Dallas. I'm so glad that you could join us this morning for worship. My name is Pastor Dylan, and I'm one of the pastors here at church. I'm so excited to dive into the Word of God together this morning. But before we get into the message, let's pray together to ask God to prepare us to receive His Word, to prepare us to receive His message. So let's pray together before we get started. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you just for your faithfulness and your goodness and the ways that you've already expressed that to us this morning. And the fact that we could gather together, that we are here, we are worshiping you with your people. Would you speak to us this morning? Would you use your word to change us, to transform us and send us out so that we can make an impact in the world? We thank you, God, for this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So you may or may not have heard by now, but this whole Christian thing, this church thing, is really centered around this guy named Jesus. Um, but have you ever wondered to yourself, like, was Jesus really that good? Did Jesus really live that perfect life? You know, if Jesus was human like us, then he definitely struggled, right? Kind of just how we do all the time. You might feel it might be heretical to ask these kinds of questions. We're talking about Jesus after all, right? I think it's a valid question. How can we be sure that Jesus was blameless? How can we know that he was just quote unquote good? Well, if you ever wondered about those questions, then you're in luck because that's exactly what we're going to dive into this morning. We're going to get into the question, is Jesus really as good as we've been led to believe? We're going to dive into that this morning. So for the past few weeks, we've been in a series called Encounters with Jesus. This is where we're taking a look into specific experiences that different people have had in the Bible with Jesus. We're looking at to see what it teaches us about him, what it teaches us about ourselves and the world. And today we're going to look into a pretty specific and significant encounter that I would say is pretty unique in our list. We're going to be looking at an encounter between Jesus and the devil. In the church, we talk a lot about Jesus. I don't think we talk as much about Satan at least not directly. Kind of sometimes I feel like he's he's like a he who must not be named kind of kind of situation where we talk indirectly about him, but we don't talk about him directly. But today in our passage, it's going to be Jesus and Satan head to head talking to each other. For Christians, this is a matchup that we've been waiting for, right? I know this morning is actually Super Bowl Sunday, but we have an even better showdown here between Jesus and the devil. So this is one of the few times that we're going to see him go head to head, face to face. And it's going to directly answer the question for us. Was really was Jesus really that good? So our passage for today then comes from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And this is going to be talking about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. I read our passage out for us. I encourage you to turn there in your own Bibles. It will be on screen, though. So yeah, Matthew 4. Um, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him. It is also written, 
Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. So some Old and New Testament context is going to help give us some depth of understanding here. Because while we're focusing in on this passage today, it's actually part of the overall narrative of Matthew, and really just part of the overall narrative of the Bible, more broadly speaking. So the events of this encounter, they're very intentional. Jesus isn't only being put to the test, but it's actually also a parallel to Israel in the Old Testament. Because the Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, as a way to see if they would remain faithful to God. For Matthew's original readers then, they would immediately see this parallel. Israel in the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days. This is to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of what God's people were supposed to be. Additionally, in the immediate context of Matthew, Jesus in the wilderness comes right after his baptism and after talking about his genealogy. So Jesus' temptation in the wilderness This is his last act of preparation right before he starts his public ministry, which happens in verse 12, right after our passage, he starts his ministry. So I know that's a lot of background, but I hope it shows you that while we have our direct interaction between Jesus and the devil here, it's actually part of a meta-narrative of the Bible. And our question, which is, you know, was Jesus really that good? This has to be understood in the context of the whole Bible. Keep that idea in the back of your mind, because we're going to revisit it later on. So let's actually get into our passage today then. So verse 1 already starts by potentially throwing us for a loop, depending on how we read it. It says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It might be easy to gloss over that, but think about that for a second. What does it mean that the Spirit led Jesus to be tempted? One reading could show that you know God was bringing temptation to Jesus. We have to remember that it says in James 1 that God does not tempt anyone. Instead, you know, he, he does allow circumstances as a test of our character and faith. So another reading of these verses could be that Jesus fell into the devil's trap, right? Jesus thought he was being really pious by going out, fasting, and praying for 40 days and 40 nights. But little did he know the devil would be waiting for him. And in his time of weakness, would, te- would lead him into temptation. Well, doesn't quite hold up either. Because remember, the Spirit led Jesus out there. So God has intention behind this. What has to be the case then is that Jesus didn't fall into the devil's trap and God wasn't caught off guard when Satan appeared in the wilderness to tempt Jesus. This was always part of the plan. Because the question I started with this morning was, you know, was Jesus really that good? Well, the people in Jesus' day probably had that same question too. And before Jesus could start his ministry, he had to prove himself faithful to God. While our verse here uses the word tempted, it could very well be said that Jesus was being tested. It's a similar biblical idea. Sometimes temptation and testing are two sides of the same coin. Not always, but sometimes. You know, if we read the first three chapters of Matthew, we're going to read about Jesus' genealogy, which is his ancestry, and then we'll also read about his baptism. 
And these aren't just here just because Matthew felt like it, like it'd be a good introduction or something. Um, but they actually give an introduction into who Jesus is very specifically, why he really is this promised Messiah, the savior of the world. Through Jesus' ancestry, he's tied right back to King David. And through his baptism, he's affirmed as God's son that the Old Testament prophesied about. And now in his temptation in the wilderness, he's improved himself morally qualified by resisting temptation. Matthew intentionally framed Jesus this way, that Jesus is legally, scripturally, and morally qualified to be the Messiah. This is the one that Israel's been waiting for this whole time. So this encounter that we're reading has far-reaching implications for our understanding of who Jesus is. But, you know, Jesus hasn't gone out of the wilderness yet. So let's take a look at what actually happens in this passage. We'll take a look first at verses 3 to 4. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. All right. So Jesus here is original Jesus Juker. He's pulling out Bible verses in his casual conversations. And again, that's intentional. Remember I said that Jesus' temptation is a parallel to Israel in the Old Testament. Jesus is actually quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, which talks about Israel wandering in the wilderness. In case the readers didn't get this subtext, this parallel, Jesus makes it really obvious. Basically saying like, hey, there's a deeper meaning here. That's why I'm quoting from Deuteronomy 8. Just like a quick question is like, when's the last time either of us quoted from Deuteronomy? And when's the last time we even read Deuteronomy? Jesus didn't pull just any scripture out, but he went to what is for today, for us today, is a more obscure book of the Bible. So this should make it stand out even more when we're reading it. Satan knows that Jesus is hungry. We know it too, because it literally says that Jesus is hungry. I mean, 40 days without food, uh, you know, I'm like hungry after four hours. So I, I don't know about you, but... Jesus is definitely hungry. So Satan knew where to start by tempting him with food. And note how he starts by saying, if you are the son of God. Satan here actually isn't really questioning whether or not Jesus is the son of God. The way this question is structured actually implies that it's a true statement. So it might be better conveyed if it's written as, because you are the son of God, turn these stones to bread. Do you see the slight difference there? As they say, you know, the devil's in the details, right? Because Satan is taking this true statement that Jesus is the son of God and he's twisting that truth. He's applying it in a way that it wasn't originally intended. He's basically saying, hey, Jesus, you're the son of God, like the son of God. You have the right to use your supernatural abilities to feed yourself. You know, you, you might even say that you deserve it. You might deserve to satisfy your own needs. There's a slight shift in the question that's devious. Because it causes you to question a little bit, because this is a lie that's based in truth. And that's how temptation works in the real world, too. The devil knows that we aren't idiots, right? He's not just going to start with something crazy. He's going to start with something true. It would be pretty rare that you, know, you might be walking down the street, and there might be this pile of cash with a sign that says, please steal me right here. Uh, but more often than not, the devil's going to take something true to lead us astray. You know, maybe you worked really hard at work this week. Maybe you put in a lot of effort into your most recent family dinner. Satan's going to take the opportunity then just to slightly turn your thinking so that you will go where he wants you to, right? You work so hard. You might start thinking to yourself, yeah, I deserve this one like guilty pleasure. What harm could it do? You know, at that moment, he's got you. He's got you hooked in. 
So remember, why Jesus came out to the wilderness in the first place was to fast. It is to meet a spiritual need, to pray and connect with God. But then Satan quickly turned it into meeting a physical need. Right? His slight misdirect changes the entire situation. So what about us? How often do we prioritize what we need physically over what we need spiritually? How often has this conversation played out in your head like, yeah, I, I know I should go spend time with God. I know I should go to the community group. I should attend worship. You know, my favorite show is on or I'm just kind of tired. You know, maybe I'll just do it later, right? It's just online anyways. It's this subtle shift that Satan wants to make in our lives. Those subtle shifts lead to major changes if we are left to build upon one another. I've seen it too often, right? Soon someone just hasn't been to church or even picked up their Bible in months. Eventually they might even forget why they went to church in the first place, right? Skip Sunday here, you know, skip a devotional here just because you're tired, you sleep in, right? Our vision slowly gets clouded. Satan doesn't want to blind us right away. That'd be too obvious. Instead, he wants us to slowly change our prescription and our vision until before you know it, it's gone all dark. If you find yourself in that place today, or if you find yourself on that path toward the darkness, I'm here to tell you that it isn't too late. Jesus invites us back to him. As we keep reading, we're going to see what that looks like. So next up, Satan steps up his game just a little bit. Jesus quoted scripture at him, so the devil's going to play this game too. He's going to quote some scripture back at him. Yeah, so even the devil knows the Bible. Probably better than a lot of us, actually, if we're being honest. Because you have to have some level of understanding before you can manipulate something. So in verse 6, the devil says, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Then Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Wow. Jesus has that quick clap back, this quick comeback to meet scripture with scripture. I kind of imagine like there's a group of angels maybe watching them in the in the wilderness, like they're having like a rap battle or something. The devil quotes the Bible straight at him. Then Jesus quotes it right back and the angels get all hyped up. Because Jesus comes out on top once again. Maybe I'm reading into it, the situation a little too much. Um, but I just like to imagine it that way. That Jesus and the devil out in the wilderness having this Bible off competition. But you know, back to a little bit more substantial point. The devil quotes Psalm 91, actually. He uses that to try to tempt Jesus. So this right here, we should actually take note of this. Because this happens all the time. Because he is taking Psalm 91 way out of context. And people do this all the time, right? Today, left and right people, they quote the Bible out of context to make the point that they want to make. Well, I hate to tell you that this is straight out of the devil's playbook. You know, it, it seems convenient, but it's the wrong thing to do. Because if you actually go and read Psalm 91, you immediately see a bunch of flaws in Satan's argument. For time's sake, I'll just tell you, but I encourage you to actually go take a look at Psalm 91. You can see how these couple of verses that he quotes are taken out of context, and then they can be manipulated to mean something totally different from what they meant. So if we read Psalm 91, we're actually going to see that it's directed at anyone that believes in God. It's not even about Jesus, the Son of God specifically, but about all believers. You know, But it is about God coming to the rescue of believers. Satan got that part right. You know, that's a little sliver of truth, the, the needle of truth in the haystack of lies. 
What it isn't about, though, is intentionally putting yourself in a situation where God has to act. Psalm 91, it's not saying that we have to go, you know, walk out in the middle of the highway or something because God's going to protect you. He won't let you get run over. Um, It's saying that for those of you that believe in God, um, that are real, actual believers, when you are in real, actual times of need, you can rely on God because he'll prove faithful. That's why Jesus has this rebuttal again from Deuteronomy that we aren't supposed to put God to the test. Again, Satan is like really tricky here in how he's trying to manipulate this thinking. First, he again, he acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God. And so he's baiting him by saying, you know, you're the Son of God. You should be able to put God to the test. The implication here, you know, the underlying message that Satan wants to get across in this indirect way is that God is only trustworthy when he rescues us from danger. Only when he comes and intervenes on our behalf can we say that God is good. Embedded in this temptation is the argument that God should prioritize our comfort above all else. And so the idea here is that God really serves us, not the other way around. And it's really easy to fall into this trap, you know, right? Because God continually, he talks about his love and his kindness, his faithfulness toward all of us throughout the whole Bible in Psalm 91 also. And we can think that this gift of love that God freely gives to us, we can start thinking that we deserve it that we're entitled to it, that God must show us his love, and that if he doesn't, he isn't a God that loves us. Again, I hope that you're tracking with me and you can see just how quickly and how easily the devil just slightly alters the narrative. Just by a few degrees and just that slight alteration changes everything, the whole underlying narrative. He wants us to think, you know, if God truly loves you, make him prove it. Can you see how quick that perspective can shift? You know, what's the most sinister thing is that this idea, it usually presents itself in the opposite way. That when we undergo difficult times in life, when we undergo really challenging times, just maybe just like every day in 2020, 2021, I don't know, uh, we start questioning, does God really love me? Is he really a good God? And then the seed of doubt quickly blossoms into a forest of uncertainty that undermines our faith. But if we read the whole of scripture and not just pick out the verses that we like, we see that God doesn't promise us a life of luxury and ease. Our comfort this side of heaven isn't guaranteed. It's actually the opposite. Jesus says that the world is going to be against us because of him. The invitation to faith in Jesus isn't an invitation to comfort, but more often it's actually an invitation to discomfort. Because when we are truly living in obedience to God, he prunes our lives. He pushes us to do things we wouldn't naturally do, but we end up growing and coming out stronger on the other side because of it. Jesus knew better than the lie that Satan was trying to sell him. Jesus knew that God is faithful, even when he allows suffering in our lives. We don't have the benefit of really knowing where the suffering will lead or how God might use it for good, but our invitation is to trust him, even in the midst of the storm. Some of the times in my own life when I grew the most was in the midst of adversity, right? So these difficulties, they aren't always a bad thing. In the moment, they definitely feel that way, I'll be honest. But our invitation is to trust that God has a greater purpose and that he is faithful to his promises. You know, in my preparation for this message, I came across this really great quote that says, testing is not trusting. Now, when we want to test God, that's born out of distrust. 
Now, this isn't a say that we can't question and wrestle with God, because that's a two-way exchange if we're wrestling with God about something. But if we're just trying to put God to the test, then we're putting something to him. We're throwing something to him that's just a one-way exchange. And this puts unnecessary burden on God, one that's honestly unfair. You know, if we pray for ourselves to get an A on this test or we pray to get that promotion, right? And we're asking for those things. Those aren't inherently bad. But if we ask with expectation that God must do it or else, then we put the foundation of our faith on the line. It hinges on whether or not God does what we want him to do. And that's a dangerous place to be in. Faith is oftentimes uncomfortable. And that's kind of the point. God has a plan for each of us, a path for us to be like Jesus, to live as the people he created us to be. It isn't always an easy path, but it's a good path. So let's finish our threefold temptation here with verse eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. So food wasn't enough to tempt Jesus. An opportunity to test God wasn't enough either. So Satan resorts to his final trick, power. He promises to give Jesus all the kingdoms in the world just for the low, low price of selling his soul to the devil. All Jesus had to do was bow down and worship Satan. And in many ways, this is pretty representative of how temptation works in our lives. Right? We have this very appealing promise, but in exchange, we have to undermine our own integrity, our own loyalties to God. And if you're familiar with the biblical narrative, this offer from Satan is actually really ironic because Jesus, as the son of God, he's already promised all of the glory and power in the world anyways, after his death and resurrection. So what Satan is offering here actually is a shortcut to instant power. Because this is something that Jesus has already promised, but he just hasn't done the work yet to get it. And Satan wants Jesus to forfeit his mission, his redemptive work on the cross, with hopes that this promise of power and glory isn't be enough, that Jesus will take this shortcut. I mean, if it's gonna happen anyways, why not speed up the process, right? It kind of makes sense. Jesus is the king after all. So here's your kingdom, right? Take what's yours. Again, this is an appeal to an entitled attitude. And the thing about shortcuts is that there's always a catch, something that is undermined by taking that shortcut. For Jesus, his mission on earth was to achieve salvation for all that would believe in him, restoring this relationship between God and humanity. And one of the results of that was reigning in God's kingdom. But that wasn't the main point. Again, Satan gives us kind of like half-truth, hoping that Jesus will go for the riches and forget the relationship. The Father sent the Son for a purpose. And if he were to give in to Satan's offer, it's not only to give up his mission, it's also to exchange the love of the Father for the worship of Satan. And we're put at those crossroads more often than we think, and even in our own lives, making the choices between our own relationship with God and giving in to whatever temptation is before us. Do we choose the shortcut to riches, or do we remember and prioritize our relationship? You know, because life is a journey, it's a process. We can't take a shortcut in life. 
right? For those of you that are married, imagine if you had the option to just take the shortcut to the wedding day. You know, forget courtship, forget dating, all that kind of stuff. Like you're supposed to get married, right? That's the end goal. Might as well just do it. But in exchange, you would actually lose the foundation that your marriage is actually built on, which is this relationship that you built up over time. We live in this quick fix, instant gratification world, but there's always a compromise that has to take place, right? I can go microwave this frozen dinner. You know, I can eat it pretty immediately, just a couple minutes. Just have a compromise of my own health over the long term. You know, the alternative, I can actually cook a healthy and well-balanced meal. I don't think it's controversial to say that fast food's unhealthy for you. Um, we understand that in exchange for convenience, you actually give up something with fast food. So why do we think that we can do the same thing in our faith? That if we just read the verse of the day in the Bible app, we can just have this thriving relationship with God. Why do we think that just attending worship once a week is going to give us access to this intimate relationship between God, the Father, and the Son? Faith can't be taken on a shortcut. This goes back to our desire for comfort over growth, which is represented in the second temptation. We have to remember, faith is often uncomfortable. I know the shortcut seems appealing. There's always a price to be paid. Right? Satan's empty lie here is also immediately exposed. Because in one verse, Satan is telling Jesus to bow down to him. But in the next, Jesus is commanding Satan to go away, to which the devil actually just promptly obeys Jesus' command. It's pretty ironic that Satan told Jesus to bow down, when in reality, Satan just obeyed what Jesus told him to do. Jesus kept his focus on the big picture. He remembered his mission. He leaned on the truth of scripture to withstand all of the temptations that the devil threw at him. How are you keeping your focus on God's picture for your life? Or how have you maybe shifted your gaze just slightly off from God? You know, just a little give here, a little compromise here. Jesus invites us back to follow his example and turn our gaze to God and turn away from the ultimately empty promises of the devil. So I know like, I usually have two points of application, but today is going to be actually a little bit different. And my exhortation to us as a church today is to follow Jesus' example of obedience. We started with the question, is Jesus really that good? And through this encounter, we see that the answer is unequivocally yes. But this experience is more than just Jesus going head to head with the devil actually provides us a framework to do the same. Jesus doesn't just withstand temptation and just leave us and be like, good luck, do that too, just do what I did. Um, we actually receive this paradigm to understand the devil's playbook. These three temptations actually represent the three main ways that the devil tries to tempt us away from him, or away from God and toward him. So this is actually summarized in 1 John 2, 16 and 17 really well. And it says this, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So from this, we get three categories, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh, which is us trying to do something apart from God's will. Jesus was out there fasting and Satan wanted him to put his hunger, a desire of the flesh, over his spiritual need. And secondly, the lust of the eyes, 
who's wanting to have something apart from God's will. Satan wanted Jesus to misuse his power as the Son of God to make God the Father serve him, not the other way around. Then the pride of life, which is to be something apart from God's will. Satan offered Jesus a shortcut to have riches, but at the price of forfeiting his relationship with the Father. And these represent a lot of our human experience. The world tells us to choose comfort and put consumerism above all else. We're supposed to use our gifts, our resources, our privilege just to benefit ourselves instead of serving other people. And it tells us to take shortcuts for our personal gain while ignoring the cost to others and ourselves. The message of the world is that selfishness is okay because you deserve it, right? You're entitled to that. That's a road that takes us far away from God's purpose for our lives. So these are the three ways Satan tries to tempt us. And this is the way he tempted Jesus. Because you see, you know, the strategy is not all that complicated. It actually hasn't changed a lot, even since the beginning. If we look back at the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, you'll see that this pattern is repeated, just like here in Matthew and just like for us today. Right? It says, you know, Eve saw that the fruit was good for food is pleasing to the eye, is desirable for gaining wisdom. But all those things, they're apart from the will of God, the flesh, the eyes, the pride of life. So as we consider our decisions, how we live our life, right? How can we use this framework to understand that the devil's doing the same thing in our own lives, trying to manipulate the truth around us? So ask yourself, which of these three are you most susceptible to? And what can you do today to hold steadfast against the attack of the enemy. The idea behind us following Jesus' example is that actually we can't do it on our own power, right? We've already given into all three of these categories countless times in our lives, probably even this week or even this morning. But Jesus has proven himself victorious against the devil. So that when we are facing these things, these temptations, when we're going head to head with temptation, we can turn to him who has already overcome. Jesus didn't have to go through this to, defeat, to defeat sin and death. He did it to identify with us, to show who he is as the son of God. Hebrews 2, 17 to 18 says it well. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. Are you struggling today, brothers and sisters? Are the troubles of the world just closing in on you from all sides? Is temptation knocking at the door? Just trying to have you shift your gaze a little bit from God. Right? Don't give in. Turn your gaze to Jesus, our faithful high priest. He's able to help us in our trouble. So just to summarize, we're supposed to follow Jesus' example of obedience. And we use this temptation framework to understand how Satan is going to try to strategize against us to draw us away from God. We have to remember we're not alone in the struggle. Because Jesus, he's been through it, and he's coming out victorious. And he's there to help us to do the same. So I hope that this is helpful, that you can use this to try to see and understand the, the way that Satan might be working in your own life, you can use it to refute him just like Jesus did. You can rely on the word, you can rely on Jesus 
and so that ultimately we too come up, come away victorious through the power of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the example of Jesus, that he was able to withstand the temptation of the devil. We thank you that he now empowers us to do the same, that we, you know, we couldn't do it through our own power, but through Jesus, we are able to do so. Would you help us to see ourselves honestly and truly how we might have strayed? Um, and then we just show us the way back to you. Show us the path back that you've already been giving us. That's been there. We just have to take it. Ultimately, use this to, to help us to grow spiritually, God, as a church, as individuals. And as a result, uh, we would be stronger in our faith, God. And that from that, we can see how you want to use us as a church. We thank you, God, for your love, which is true. Your love that is unconditional to us, God. And we see it, experience it, and believe it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you again for joining us for worship this morning. Um, I'm glad that we can worship together. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.